0: People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host.
1: Yeah, yeah, let's get that out of the way to get pizza. Jeff. (laughs) Jeff, what time does the 7 o'clock podcast start, Jeff?
0: Elliot, we are in Hamilton as we kick off another edition of 32 Thoughts, the podcast alongside a packed house here at Boston Pizza and our producer Emil Delich as always. We started this off in Peterborough like this and I want to do it in Hamilton as well. We're going to get to all the news of the day. We're going to get to your Robertsons. We're going to get to the cuts. We're going to get to Barzell and all of it. When I think of Hamilton, as a kid, I always thought about the new Westminster Bruins from the West facing off against the Hamilton Fin Cups. And that was the big rivalry, East meets West. And then I got a little older, and it became about cops, Coliseum in 1987. People like Rick Lee, people like Pat Quinn, people like Dave Andruchuk, when I say Hamilton and hockey, what comes to your mind?
1: Unfortunately, the first thing that comes to my mind is Kevin Bieksa. <laughs> and I think about the Hamilton mafia that Kevin is always promoting, Ben Sherrat. Also, my new favorite player... On the peak of an NHL career, Arbor Jekai. We were just talking about him a couple of seconds yeah, ago and how the Bulldogs I, got him. I, I love the guy. I love watching him play. And what,
0: hang on. What was DJ Smith's reaction when we said eye when we saw him in, in Ottawa a couple of weeks ago? I don't remember. He was, oh, that guy. Yeah. Oh, going, that guy.
1: Yeah. So you have an identity, right? So honestly, Jeff, when I first think of Hamilton, I actually don't think of hockey first. Okay. I think of the old Ivor Iverwind Stadium. Because, you know, I was, uh, you know, I, I, like I did a lot of CFL games when we were still at the CBC. We hosted a lot of games from Hamilton. I remember even before I worked on the CFL on CBC at the time, especially like the games against Toronto, like there were fights on the field and there were fights in the stands. And when you're young and you first see people fighting in the stands, it's the favorite thing you've ever seen. So I actually have to say when I first think of Hamilton, I first think of the Old Iverwind Stadium. But when I think of hockey in, in Hamilton, I think of 87 Canada Cup. I still th- say the greatest hockey I've ever seen. <laughs> I think of BXA. I think of Sherrod. I think of Jack Eye. I think of all the Hamilton hockey players. Pat Quinn is a great... Like, Pat Quinn, he was really proud. Like, he would glare at you, and he would look like he wanted to smash you into bits. But when you mention Hamilton, like, the big smile came on his face you know we're gonna to talk to Steve Steos in a second but when you ever you asked him about his parents store like he always talked with pride about his parents store and I know Michael too like if you're from the hammer you speak of it with pride there's there's no doubt about it
0: one of the things that I always admired about Quinn is you know always considered very much a player's coach and how many times were you part of this after a tough loss more specifically on the road he could do this a lot more than at home, He would stand outside of the dressing room and filibuster while everybody inside got themselves together, maybe after a tough loss, composed themselves, maybe a couple snuck out the back door as well, and he did it deliberately to make sure the microphones and cameras didn't get in the room quick to catch a player off guard. I always remember that. He would just stand there, like, in front of the door, like, physically protecting his players from cameras and microphones.
1: Yeah, I really loved that as a reporter, (laughs) man, when I was doing... uh, I understood and respected it. The other thing I remember about Quinn was, there was always a game I remember, I think it was against Vancouver. I think Messier was playing for Vancouver at the time. Glenn Healy was getting a rare start because it was the Curtis-Joseph years, and, uh, you know, Curtis faced all the good teams. So Healy was uh, getting a night where to play, and he had a 4 nothing shutout going until the last minute. And I think it was Messier who scored in the last minute. The Leafs lost their concentration, and Healy lost his shutout. And Quinn came out, and he was steaming. He was like, I thought these players considered Glenn Healy a popular teammate. And he was just mad that Healy had lost his shutout. And uh, I always remembered that, because you come out after a night like that where you're dominant for 59 minutes... And you think as a coach, you're like, oh, that was great. But he was mad that in that last minute where they let up, Healy lost his shutout. I always thought that was a good snippet of who Pat Quinn was.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so we're going to get to the news of the day here and get to our guests a little bit uh, later on. So I'm going to go wander because apparently this stick works
1: now. We're all good to go. When almost here, we're used to about 47% functioning equipment. (laughs) Let's see if will leaves that one in the podcast tomorrow.
0: I'm just going to sort of wander here, Elliot, and get, and get buried in Hamiltonians. Uh, the Jason Robertson saga, we'll kick it off there. So that comes to an end. We heard this thing had all kinds of twists and turns and acrimony and, and frustration, but it's over. It is a four-year deal. It is $31 million. The AAV is 7.75. He is back in the Dallas mix. I have to believe that the number that everything changed on was 9.3 because that's the actual salary in the fourth year. What do you make of this deal?
1: Well, first of all, I would like to say, Jeff, I committed a major rookie mistake on Wednesday night. So Wednesday night, I thought, you know, the season's a week away, six days away. I'm going to score some wife points by watching like a few episodes of Cobra Kai with her and then going to bed at a reasonable hour. And so, you got
0: you and Steph are romantic, eh? Cobra Kai? Yeah, yeah. Oh, all right. Cobra
1: Kai and a reasonable night of going to bed. Like, I have to say, like that's what I love about her. She's an easy person to please.
0: I thought I was born to be mild. Look at you two guys. So
1: we, we, we do that, and, and I fell asleep about 11.30 now. like During the season, I think I'm like a lot of people who cover the sport. You don't go to bed until the last game is over, and you make sure nothing immediately important happens in the aftermath of it. But the season doesn't start, so you know I figured I'd go to bed reasonably early. And I woke up this morning to a bunch of texts, are you awake? Jason Robertson's closing in, we're hearing, and credit to Kevin Weeks, who stayed up late to break the story. And immediately, I I said to my wife this morning, okay, no more Cobra Kai and no more early (laughs) nights. I guess it's a reminder, it's time to work. And you know, I, I do think that settling that 9.3 in the last year was a big deal because now when he's done, so Jason Robertson has five years until he's an unrestricted free agent. So in that, after that fourth year, they'll have to qualify him at 9.3 million to keep his rights. and At the very least, that'll be his salary for that last year before unrestricted free agency. And it's a big deal. Like DeBrinckit in Ottawa's in the same situation. But I think what really happened here, Jeff, is that there came to be a realization. We had talked on the last podcast that there were a lot of people who were getting frustrated because they felt this thing should have been done. That it was close enough to being done and there was no need for there still to be a contract dispute at this time. And I think that it was because an eight-year deal, everybody realized it just wasn't feasible. And what Dallas could do and what, Robertson and his camp may have been asking on an eight-year deal. I believe, I don't know this for sure, this is my educated guess, on an eight-year deal, Robertson felt he was in the 10s. And Dallas just couldn't do that right now. They just don't have the room to do it. Dallas was able to keep the room, and they specifically were smart enough to keep the room to do something in the 7 to 8 range, but they couldn't do the 10s. So I think once everybody kind of realized here that they couldn't do term, It had to be shorter, and that last year was what you said it was. I think it fell into place finally reasonably quickly. But I think it took until this week for everybody to realize that a long-term eight-year deal just wasn't going to happen. And to be honest, I think the team knew a little bit ago that they weren't going to be able to do term. I think Robertson didn't want to miss any games. I think that was a big part of it. But I think they just had to come to grips with the fact that an eight-year deal was not going to be possible at this time.
0: You know, any type of eight-year deal with, as you mentioned, something in the tens for Jason Robertson. You know, the, the whole time we're watching this thing and saying, okay, let's see how much cap space Dallas has, and if it got into the seven five, seven six, seven, and getting into eight, they were going to have to make a move. Yeah, like it was going to cost them players off their roster. Now, do you think they still do something? I mean, they have, they have three goalies right now, and everyone's looking at Anton Hudobin.
1: Well, I think that's the thing. Like, what do they want to do with Hudobin? You know, Dallas has been hurt by health the last few years uh, in goal. They've had a lot of injuries, Bishop, Holtby. But the thing is, you can't keep three goalies around. We'll see what the move is. But they've had teams asking them about Hudobin. But as you know, teams want them to eat money or pay them to do it. It's not always something you want to do. Dallas has championship aspirations, and I think everything they do is about protecting themselves for that. I'd be surprised. But obviously, at this point in time, what other teams are asking Dallas to do to move that contract, Right, they're not willing.
0: So here's how I measure the value of insiders and the worth of insiders. A, long, a lot of people, be, oh, how many stories they break, how many trades they get on trade deadline. You know how I do it,
1: Elliot? I shudder to hear this answer. I know I'm going to score low on this scale, whatever it is. No,
0: no, no, because I see you on your coffee shop days with your makeup off, so I know you're legit. <laughs> I measure it based on how dark the rings are around your eyes by the end of a season. Now, you mentioned going to bed early yesterday. There's one litmus test that I always have for insiders. What's that? Where were you when Chris Stewart and Kevin Shattenkirk got traded for Eric Johnson, St. Louis, Colorado at 2.30 in the morning?
1: That's always been my litmus test. Were you there for it? That was really before my days as an insider. So I can't really say that that was kind of my job then. But I do remember that there was one, I think it was Matt Dumba's contract with, or arbitration award or contract or something like that with Minnesota. I think I broke that one at like 3 in the morning or something like that. Someone sent me the note. The next morning I had texts from people who were kind of involved who were like, do you ever freaking sleep? Yep. It's funny, some people react like a really funny way to this, this story, and some people think it's, it means that I'm pathetic, and some people think it means I'm really dedicated. So I'm always <laughs> curious to see where people fall on this. But I think the last two times I ever really turned off my phone were the birth of my son for obvious reasons. And then the last time after that I, I turned it off, Dion Fanof was traded from Calgary to Toronto so I'm like I never really turn it off anymore and some people look at that story and say you're really dedicated and other people look at that story and say you're really pathetic so <laughs> I, I guess it's it's your opinion how you see it uh what does your wife think uh she leans to pathetic I did get one you're better looking in person tonight just so oh, just one? so you know I, I got one tonight yes
0: yeah. Congratulations on the promotion, Elliot.
1: It was not from anyone I work with who's right. here, just so you know.
0: Sinking to new heights and rising to new depths, Elliot Friedman. We sort of talked a little bit about this when we were in Vegas at the Players Tour, and that's Matthew Barzell. Eight-year deal, $72.2 9 on the AAV. What do you make of this? We talked about how... Maybe the, the NHL is completely missing the boat on this guy as far as marketing goes, both on and off the ice. Your thoughts on Barzell and this deal?
1: I think we knew, I don't know how many of you listened to the uh, interview we did with him from Vegas, but there were a lot of people who thought after they heard that interview that he's staying. And you'll remember we talked about how after that interview aired, we, I got a phone call and someone said they're working on it now. And, you know, it's, it's Lamorello world, so it's tight. It wasn't a big shocker that it didn't get out before the Islanders announced it. It's interesting. There was some big debate about the numbers. You said it's 9.15, and the fact that Barzell's counting numbers aren't that high. Well, number one, he's an unrestricted free agent, so it's always higher. And, you know, I've quoted this book before, and I always tell people, if you want to understand how a good agent thinks, this is the book you should read. It's called The Bald Truth, and it's by a guy named David Falk, who in his heyday... He represented Michael Jordan, he represented Patrick Ewing, he represented James Worthy, he represented a lot of big NBA stars as the NBA really started to grow. And one of the things he talked about was when you're a good agent, just like a good negotiator for a team, you sort of manipulate things to your benefit. Like, you know, some people will come at you and say, well, okay, your guy had 20 goals last year, well, this guy had 25, and he's making $6 million. So there's no way you should make a penny more than that guy. And a good agent will say, well, that's their situation. This is your situation. And your situation is not the same as that situation. And, and, you know, I was talking about this with a few agents and a few GMs. And the thing that they all understand is, first of all, in the Islanders, the way they've played, and it worked for them. Nobody's knocking it. Nobody scores a ton, okay? So Matthew Barzell is playing in a system where, nobody scores a ton. And people recognize that. And it might not change a lot. But does that mean that Matthew Barzell is not valuable and that valuable to the Islanders? No, it's not. Because like if he leaves, it's devastating to your fan base, especially on the heels of Tavares. It's a lot of what Ottawa did this year, Jeff. It's it's you have to win your fan base. It's you have to. There are times when you have to do things that maybe you wouldn't do in a normal situation, but you have to send a message to your fan base. You just had a year you missed the playoffs. DeVaris walked a couple years ago. You've got a new building. Your fans are excited. Like I, I had an Islanders fan I know was like, I'm in tears when he saw Barzell sign the other day. That's worth the value and. I think maybe he's never going to score in New York. We'll see how they play under Lane Lambert. Maybe he's never going to score like McDavid playing for the Islanders, but that doesn't mean that the Islanders know or don't know that if he goes somewhere else, he won't do that there. So I think sometimes people look at it and say, ah, well, this guy's making eight or seven or six, and he's better than that. It's not about comparables. It's about someone's worth in your own situation. And for Burzell and the Islanders, he's worth all of that. He's worth that salary. One
0: one of the things that we've seen with the Islanders is that they haven't really changed their team much. Like last year was a disappointment. We know all about the road trip, the new rink, all of it, COVID, which hammered the Islanders. Is there any reason to expect something different from the Islanders this season in your estimation?
1: I think they will be better for all those. Like last year, I had someone from that organization tell me and, uh, after hearing this part of the podcast, Lou morello will start his like, spyware <laughs> search of phones. Out, yeah. uh, but someone from that organization told me you had no idea how hard last year was on everybody there, between the road trip and the COVID, and and that was a team that was on fumes during that whole COVID situation because they were trying to open their building. They said they they just never got out of the muck. That was the phrase he used. We got caught in the muck and we could never get out of it. And I think for that reason alone, they'll be a lot better. Everybody was burned out there last year. Everybody needed a break.
0: Uh, I want to get to some of the games this weekend, some of the decisions that the teams have on the horizon. One big decision that Philadelphia Flyers just made. You
1: know what? Do you want to do just to bring Cat quick? Well, oh, you
0: want to do, Cat? Sure. Alex, to bring it.
1: Well, we should just mention it because there, you know, it was, it was a report that they were talking deeply. I don't know how far along it is. You know, the one thing is that. Unlike Stutzla and Kachuk, who are restricted free agents, gets a UFA. He's just getting there. I think he's going to have a monster year. He's making nine this year, and his qualifying offer, like Robertson, next year is nine. So there really is no incentive for anyone to rush here because you know that he's making nine this year and nine next year. So I don't know how quickly this is going to happen. I mean, if, if he's a great player, and I always think if you're signing great players... You sign them for as long as you can, as quick as you can, because the price never goes down. But I think if you're Ottawa, there's some reason to wait and look and see here how the marriage works too. I don't know that anyone here is in a rush.
0: So here's the thing about Dabrinkit as well. You're right, like next two seasons is $18 million. You look at Dabrinkit, he's coming off the 41-goal campaign, second time he's done it in his career, and the question becomes, can he do 50? Can he score 50 goals? And he'll start by playing with Stutzla and Giroux can slide batherson down there as well in and in a pinch as well dj smith has that option i think the way it, it calculates elliot if he can get off two more shots per game he can get 50 like is there any reason to doubt that alex de can score 50 no. for the Sens? no i think he could that power play is going to be killer yes it is And there's going to be some long faces, some boo-boo faces of players that don't get on the first unit.
1: Some real good players. Jacob Trickman, what's the latest? I think the plan is that he'll resume skating with Arizona next week. He hasn't skated with them yet. Arizona's on a trip. I think when they get back, the hope is he's going to start skating with them. I always worry in this business because things change with one phone call. Everything I'm hearing right now is it's a little premature to say anything's happening right away. He's going to start skating. This year, and I've said a lot, there's been a lot of rumors around Chikrin, and I think one of the things, and I understand it, I think the player would like this to be over. I really do, and I can understand that. The Coyotes are willing to wait to be a bit more patient. I think teams want to see him healthy, and like I said, I heard he could be skating next week, but it can always change with one phone call. I've just heard it's a little quiet right now. I wonder if it changes when he starts skating next week. And, of course, the moment I say this, he's going to get traded, and I'm going to look like a big idiot.
0: (laughs) Uh, We've talked a lot, and for good reason. Anytime that John Tortorella shows up uh, as a first-year coach with a new team, there are stories. And the story this week was Cam Yorick getting sent down to the American Hockey League. Good young defenseman, former first-round draft pick, played 30 games with the Flyers last season. Some already penciled him in the lineup, I'm sure, with the Philadelphia Flyers. He goes down to the AHL. Your thoughts?
1: You know, the, the thing about this is we have to, like, it's got to be disappointing for York and on some level the Flyers. But I, all, I, I often think that sometimes we say if someone gets sent down to the minors, they're a failure. And I don't like saying that because there's still script here to be written. The one thing I've learned over the years, and it, the greatest thing about working at a place like Hockey Night in Canada is that people will talk to you a little longer and a little more honestly about what's really going through their head. And one of the things that players have taught me throughout the years, Jeff, is that like you cannot lie to players about who deserves to play. They know the truth. They know who deserves to be in the lineup and who doesn't deserve to be in the lineup. And the other thing, too, is Philadelphia, they're trying to set a tone. The Flyers may not admit this personally, but everybody's looking at their situation this year, and nobody expects them to win this year. Nobody. But what it gives you a bit more runway to set a tone. And you can say, Cam York, you didn't have a great camp, and we can't let that slide. Like, there's a kid I was reading about today, or the last couple days in Boston, Mike McLaughlin. Yep. He had a great camp, and they sent him down. You know, Boston's trying to win, And he doesn't need waivers. I bet you that, knowing that team especially, where there's a lot of really mature veterans, they're probably all going to him and saying, you deserve to be here. Sometimes that's the way the business works, and you'll be back. But Philly can afford to make the decision with Cam York. Boston's trying to win. They probably can't afford to make that decision. But the one thing I've learned over the years, Jeff, is you cannot fool the players. They know who deserves to be in the lineup and they know who doesn't deserve to be in the lineup.
0: You know who, uh, just hearing you talk about that, whose name comes to mind right away for me in this preseason, is Lucas Dostal, who's Anaheim Ducks goaltender, who, like? I know the old stereotype of standing on his head. I don't know what more Dostal could have done to make it on the Ducks, and to a person there, I'm sure they'll tell you, he played his way onto the team, but the numbers are the numbers, and the waivers are the waivers, yeah. and sometimes, even though it's not fair... You kind of got to just eat one and go down to the American Leagues, going down, go down to San Diego one more time. But that guy looks fantastic uh, for the Anaheim Ducks. One more thing with, uh, with the Flyers. This was a flashpoint, and, Elliot, I don't think it's over. Because if you know the Flyers and you know the Islanders, it's not over. Ronnie Adder, who hadn't had a pro fight in his life, fights Ross Johnson. Islanders For your first one, he
1: didn't pick a shrinking violet. He, you know Didn't what? go the,
0: easy. The thing about it, too, and I don't think this was lost on the Philadelphia Flyers, Ross Johnson did not let up. And Adder did all right. Like, for a kid, and, his, and he's a big boy, but I don't know that this one's... Like, if I'm John Tortorella, I'm saying, really, of all the guys to pick, you're going after this defenseman?
1: You're going after this guy? I'll be curious to see, because you're right. They'll have a short memory about it, and the Flyers have talked about how they're determined to be a tougher team. But, we again, we talk about what players earn, Philly didn't send that kid down the next day. Like True. John Tortorella said, after that game, I'm not sending the kid down because we can't send him back down right after doing that. And I think that's a thing that people notice and players notice. Like you'll remember last year, one of the reasons Keith Yandle's consecutive game streak ended in Philadelphia was because Nick Sealer yeah. fought Nick Delorier. And they're like, we can't take him out of the lineup after doing that. And I, I think that's a thing that people notice. It's a small thing. But it's a big thing.
0: Calendars, flyers. Circle your calendars. Once again, it's 1982, ladies and gentlemen. It's 1982. What are you watching for this weekend? We're heading into a big one. We have cuts on the horizon, big decisions to Well,
1: make. You know, I, I think there's some interesting ones. Well, first of all, still watching some of the last remaining uh, decisions contract-wise. Nick Haig, I wondered if the Golden Knights were waiting to maximize their LTIR to sign them. I'm told that's not the case. I don't think they're too far apart, but it's still a little bit of a stalemate, so we'll watch for that one. Mackenzie Weger, I think the Flames and his agent are grinding away at trying to get that one done. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Do, 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 do. That's my breaking news slash insert music I'm sure Amal will come up with something better but that's the best thing I could come up with off the top of my head. So it's Friday afternoon, and before we drop this podcast, we had to put in an insert and an update because news is breaking that a contract extension is coming this afternoon for Calgary Flames defenseman Mackenzie Weger Now, it's not officially signed as we do this. It's an eight-year extension. We believe it's in the $50 million range, which is approximately $6.25 million a season. A couple weeks ago, Jeff and I had speculated that they were working on this, and the target was Hampus. Lindholm whose extension in Boston is eight times six and a half it comes in a little bit less than that but it's still a great deal for Uyghur it's a great deal for the Flames the only negative about it is that Uyghur's number is 52 and his overall salary for the next eight seasons just misses that if you're one of those people who's into that kind of mysticism and numerical romance but obviously the Flames are happy to get the deal done and Uyghur is happy to get the deal done at this time, when we're putting this insert in, I don't think they've finalized the exact you know, trade protection and language that still has to be officially agreed to. So we're just waiting for that to happen. But Uyghur will sign an extension. Uh, with the Calgary Flames. When it comes to Nick Hague, you know, one of the things I was kind of wondering about is would the Golden Knights want to wait until the first day of the season or right as rosters are set to sign him to maximize their LTIR? That's one of the tricks teams play, and it's a smart trick to play, but I was told that's not the case. Vegas isn't uh, waiting to do that. It's just a bit of a stalemate right now between Hague and and vegas obviously nobody wants to continue this end of the season he's a good player it's not good for the player it's not good for the team but as we do this there's still a stalemate on their one year and whatever how many year agreements they want to make we'll see where it goes but that's your quick insert for friday afternoon now back to our program And then the roster decisions, like Toronto, John Tavares, Engval, Muzzin. How's their health? Do they start short at the beginning of the year so as not to put Tavares on long-term injury? Brad Lambert and some of those young defensemen in Winnipeg. What are they going to do? Brent Clark in L.A. Lambert went, th- let's
0: not forget, Lambert went 30th.
1: Yes. But I-, I love that pick for Winnipeg. They had multiple firsts. That's did, where yeah. you take that shot. Yeah brant clark in la i know he's a guy you've watched quite a bit like nick robertson in toronto what else does he have to do to show he makes the team and
0: the, hang on the weird thing about about brant clark and i'm not sure that he makes it with the la kings yeah but what a story that would be not wanted on the voyage for a team canada the world of juniors
1: this past summer and then makes an nhl team right afterwards that would be a unique story that would definitely but sometimes you need that kick in the butt right and that's obviously worked with him. So I love this last weekend of games because I love watching just some of the people on the bubble are not sure, but we find out if they're going to make it. Like Sonny Milano, it didn't work out for him in Calgary. Is someone else going to pick him up? Cody Eakin, like you've heard there's European interest for him. Does he wait or does he go overseas?
0: Absolutely. Okay, you know what I enjoyed the last few days? What's that? Actually, this goes back to more than a, more than a couple of days. It goes back to the weekend. I really enjoyed seeing pictures of you on the internet oh, okay. officiating a wedding. Yeah.
1: Okay, so what's the story, for each? I, uh, I I really hoped this was gonna go under the radar, uh, <laughs> but it obviously it got out, and I got I have no problem with that. And some of my coworkers started saying like, "What is this?" Uh, they saw the pictures when Heat Daddy put it on his Twitter account. Like the secret was. <laughs> Out, it was out of the barn door. So, like I said, I, I'd really hope to keep it quiet. But, you know, that's life today, and it's okay. There's a gentleman on the Internet in the hockey analytics world. His name is Corey Schneider. His Twitter handle is at shutdownline. And I, I've really enjoyed Corey's work over the year. Like, he, he keeps track, and he works. Like, that's the thing I like about him the most is that he, you can tell he puts a ton of effort into his work. And, you know, he keeps tracks of small things that I think are big things, things like who's good at zone entries or defending the blue line, who recovers the puck, who wins battles, things like that. Like stuff that I think does do a little bit of a good job of telling who are the really impactful players and who aren't. If I ever ran an NHL team, and the good news for 32 teams is I never will, but if I ever ran an NHL team... I would have him on my staff. I'm a huge fan of his work, and I've reached out to him from time to time and asked him things. So a few years ago, he, uh, he met someone. Her name is Sarah. You know, they got engaged. And uh, a few months ago, Sarah sent me a um, DM on uh, Twitter and said, you know, would you want to officiate our wedding? Like, Corey, you've been so good to Corey. He's such a big fan of yours. I kind of want to do this as a surprise. And initially when I saw it, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. There's, there's no way that you want me to officiate your wedding. And, and she told me no. She was, she was quite serious. And, you know, I said, let me think about it and just let me check my schedule. And uh, to be honest, at the beginning, I didn't want to do it. Like, the thing that I was most worried about for them is they'd look back in 20 years with their family and their, their kids would be like, why do you have this idiot doing her wedding? I I really thought that. I I, you know the the wedding was a big day for me, but it was really about my wife. Like you do everything you can to make sure that she's happy. And I just wanted to make sure that in twenty years they wouldn't regret asking me to do it. And you know what my wife said to me was just imagine like how much courage it took her to ask you. Like to think about that. Like someone really put themselves out there you all know like you can have one slip up and you're that person on the internet for one day. And even though it was a DM and I would never share it, like she said, like this person put themselves out there to ask you. So you should think about it. So I did. And I really wasn't sure I could go, but eventually I did. And I went in day in, day out. It was an hour outside of Chicago. As I was going there, I was like, I have to tell you, I don't think I've ever been as nervous for anything in my life. Like, this is someone's wedding. So I wrote notes, I like, usually I never write notes. I, I wrote notes, I thought of what to say. Like, I was really nervous about this. I wanted to do a good job. And I'll tell you something else, too. Their colors, they told me, were green and gold. And I kinda had a green and gold outfit I was gonna wear. And after I left the house and drove for about five minutes to go to the airport, <laughs> I actually turned around and went back and changed because I was like, don't <laughs> d- be dressed like this at someone else's wedding. <laughs> Wear a conservative blue suit. And it wasn't until later I realized the pants weren't tapered that great. But like the one thing I could tell is I could tell that they really appreciated it. And so I was really happy to do it. Again, I-, I didn't really want to explain this. I wanted it to keep private, but it's out there and I figured I'd better explain it and uh, you know I just wanted to say thanks to Corey and Sarah because like that is an enormous enormous honor I still on some ways as I say I officiated someone's wedding I still kind of can't believe it but you know like they were obviously hugely appreciative and I appreciate the invitation I'm I'm glad they thought I did a good job because I took it very seriously like I said this is someone's wedding you have to do it the best you can. Okay, so this is like your new side
0: hustle. Like, what else are no, you available? What else are you available for? Uh, you know, for?
1: I, I'll tell you this. I got a I got a DM tonight from someone asking me if I would do theirs, and I'm like, no, I, <laughs> I think I'm retired. One one was enough. Did you ever wonder why they didn't ask the good-looking
0: guy from the podcast like yeah. to to do it? They did, Jeff. They did. <laughs> Uh, ladies and gentlemen that's the podcast for tonight thanks so much uh, pizza available next door when we come back you'll hear from Steve Steos. thanks for joining us here at Boston Pizza you know one of the things the solar eclipse remember that reminded us is people will travel to have unique experiences see things and be part of events we all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view the best safe view And they all had to stay somewhere, and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you. I was once told one of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out of towners. Many did this with the eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously, it doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple, and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences. People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash hosts. Elliot, it's Thursday night. The final stop of our 32 tour is over. We're in Hamilton. Wanted to take a few minutes and talk about Hockey Canada. Uh, We've seen major sponsors pull out or reprioritize their money. Uh, We saw Andrea Skinner um, do amongst and say amongst other things, blame the media uh, for what's happened. How did you see the last few days of Hockey Canada?
1: Jeff, a couple of weeks ago, I did a big rant after the World Women's Championship about how the medals were presented. And you know, I, I don't like doing it again simply because I've said this to you many times. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I don't like lecturing or admonishing people because it makes you sound like you're morally superior you believe you're morally superior to others and i really don't like talking from that position but they've left us with no other choice um like the thing about this week is it was so avoidable it didn't need to happen and what clearly has been lost here what's been completely lost is the recognition That you're not just representing yourself. That you're a face and arguably even the face of hockey in this country. I've told you this many times. I've said this to the audience many times that every time I go on Hockey Night in Canada, I'm really worried about sullying the reputation of Hockey Night in Canada. I'm not just going on the air as Elliot Friedman. I'm going on the air is a Hockey Dent in Canada's Elliot Friedman and that's a show with a 70 year history and I'm not just representing myself, I'm representing that. It's not something I really like talking about but when I made the mistake in the swim race I didn't care about myself but I was frightened for my family and I was embarrassed that I'd let down the other people I worked with at the CBC Olympics. So every time I do something I'm not thinking about myself. I'm thinking about who else is depending on me to do my job properly. And the thing that happened the other day was who's getting hurt? It's everybody in the hockey community that is trying, trying to recognize that there are things we have to fix. There are things we have to do better. There has to be improvement in the way that people are treated. And then when this happens, it sets it all back. And, you know, what I think it was this week, Jeff, is it was like a kick to the solar plexus. It like this didn't need to happen. And, you know, all of these organizations that are pulling support this week, none of them would be pulling their support. If the testimony was in any way showed any humility but because it didn't show humility and we've forgotten that you're speaking not just for yourself you're speaking for hockey in the country we have another firestorm and I think that's the most infuriating thing is it didn't need to happen and we've forgotten the humility here of you're not just acting for yourself You're acting for basically everybody in the sport in this country.
0: One thing that I will always remember, and I think other people will too, and I'm sure if she had a mulligan, she wouldn't have said it, but the idea of will the lights stay on in the rink if there's a change with Hockey Canada. Here's something we always, I think, Elliot, have to remember, and that was a moment for me where I said... That's a pretty arrogant stance to take, especially now. You know what's going to be okay? Even though it needs changes through all of this? Hockey. Capital H, Hockey. Kids will still want to play. People will want to pick up sticks and try this. The game will continue. There's lowercase h, Hockey Issues to deal with. No one is bigger than it, especially not Hockey Canada. That's how I felt coming out of
1: this one. I think that's very fair. I think that's very fair, Jeff. I mean, I hate lecturing people. I I hate moralizing. I really do. It's like, you've heard my line. I don't like people telling me what to do, so I don't like telling other people what to do. This was avoidable. This didn't need to happen. And um, whatever advice the people at Hockey Canada are getting, find some new advisors. All right, a smoky break for our Thoughtline partner, Montana's Barbecue and Bar. With meats prepared and smoked in-house, it's no wonder why they're Canada's home for barbecue. Check them out, and as Elliot always says... Try the ribs. Yes,
0: their ribs are smoked in-house every day until they fall off the bone. And don't forget, Montana's
1: has all-you-can-eat ribs every Wednesday. Head on down to Montana's Barbecue and Bar and take the all-you-can-eat rib challenge every Wednesday. Smoking good barbecue only at Montana's. Some conditions apply. Visit montanas.ca for details.
0: People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host. The newsmaker of the day, one of the newsmakers of the day is going to be joining us next. He is Steve Steos, who really needs no introduction here in Hamilton and needs no introduction, Elliot, to where he's going next. And that is the Edmonton Oilers, uh, today named uh, Special Assistant, Special Advisor, I should say, with the Oilers. He joins us now. He is Steve Steos. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. How long was this one in the uh, in the discussion phase? Uh, well, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Michael and I kind of embarked
2: on this OHL journey uh, seven years ago now. And uh, I think after the first couple of years, I started to get a little bit of interest, mostly just kind of casual conversations on timing and, you know, let us know when you're ready to, to move up. And, uh, you know, this time in Hamilton has been extremely, you know, rewarding for I think both Michael and I, he can speak to that as well. But um, I was a little bit hesitant. I really did enjoy running the, the team here in Hamilton and uh this one in, in particular with Edmonton sort of started up midway through last year and conversations continue to go on we went on a special run here with the Hamilton Bulldogs and won our second OHL championship here and uh so I, you know I was not getting distracted by any other the conversations but it kind of ran, ran into the summer and got a little bit more serious and uh you know I think uh, just as recently as uh uh, you know, a couple of days ago is when I really decided that this was the right next step for me. So what are you going to be doing? What are your responsibilities? Yeah, so it's it's a, a little bit of an evolving perspective right now, but player development is one area where Edmonton is, uh, uh, there's a bit of a gap there. So I think the importance nowadays with, uh, you know, the salary cap and making sure that you get your young players in and developed and work to make them impactful players at a younger age, I think becomes critical. I mean, drafting and development, you know, teams talk about it, we talk about it here in Hamilton, but at the NHL level, I think it becomes more important. And uh, my first opportunity post-playing career was with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And uh, Brian Burke had, you know, brought me on to become player development advisor. And I think I realized early on that that's a, it's a great segue for any player who's just finishing their playing career and wants to stay involved. um, so I got a cha- an opportunity there to sort of see that through for about two-plus years. And then, you know, they made a coaching change in Toronto, and I was assistant coach for half a season there before I joined Michael here in Hamilton. But uh, uh, the player development portion of the Oilers is uh, going to be my initial focus. But, um, you know, Ken Holland has talked about uh, other areas where I can help out and uh, and be part of it. And that's really the intriguing thing about this role for me. Was Berkey the worst boss you ever had? <laughs> I'll try not to get too long-winded in the story because I can't carry it the way way CC does. But uh, so the way I got hired, really, I mean, not totally hired, but that I knew that Berkey was interested. Was so my last year, I was at 936 games, and uh, you know I was ready to retire. and Sort of got convinced by my agent Pat Morris that uh, it's a good idea to go in on a tryout. And so it sort of came full circle. You know, you get drafted in the NHL and you kind of, you play and then he talks me into going in this tryout. And I'd already like sort of checked out a little bit. I thought, you know, it's going to, uh, you know, I'd retire. And, and uh, I didn't have in mind like getting to 1,000 games played. It just wasn't, I know it's a great accomplishment, but it wasn't something that I kept my eye on. Long and short of it, I'm, I'm playing with the Islanders and I'm 37 years old and I'm beat up and I was injured for the game against the Toronto Maple Leafs were in uh, Long Island playing. And so I was injured up in the stoop, and uh, after the first period, our general manager Gar Snow comes over and taps me on the shoulder. He said, "Hey, Berkey's here, and he wants to say hello to you." So I kind of crawled in. Speaking, I thought, Cece, you're going to say like the worst play-by-play boost might have been at the Coliseum because the the upper it's really hard to get around. And all I remember is trying to make my way around, and I finally sit down. And there's Berkey right. He says, "Have a seat, kid." So I sat down, and you know, Berkey and I knew each other from Vancouver. He was my general manager for a very short period of time. And so he said, uh, listen, he goes, uh, do me a favor. After we talked for a few minutes, he says, do me a favor. He said, when you're done playing, give me a call. He said, I want want you to take a year off and then, uh, you know, maybe come up to Toronto. I think you're going to make a great coach. And uh, here I was, and I looked at him and go, I don't know if I want to coach, Burke. He goes, well, what do you want to do, you know? And uh, I said, I'm not sure, but I've spent a long career playing, so I think probably after I'd want to do something in hockey, but have a little bit of flexibility. And he said... uh, uh, well, whatever you do, he just take a year off and then, you know, give me a call. And uh, here I look at him again. I said, I'm, I don't think I'm going to take a year off, you know. And then he starts, like, kind of giving me, like, a couple F-bombs, you know. Like, what are you, like, kind really of talking back to Brian Burke. Right? Yeah, yeah, I can't character. believe that happens. happened. Yeah, all right? shocked. So now he's lighting me up up there. I'm like, jeez, I'm still playing for the Islanders, you know. So <laughs> anyway, uh, that's how it really is. So he said, okay, just make sure I'm your first phone call. So about two weeks after that season with the Islanders, I called Brian Burke. Uh, and uh, we met in New York, and then I, uh, that's how I sort of started my post-playing career. So I actually texted Berkey today before I was announced with the Edmonton Oilers to thank him because he was the first one to give me an opportunity post-playing career.
0: So what you're saying is Brian Burke tampered with you then, as you remember the New York <laughs> yeah. Islanders, it was accusations of tampering already early in the interview. Uh, Gary awesome. Bedman
1: doesn't listen to this, does he? <laughs> <laughs> no, I can most assuredly convince you he does not. We, uh, we hope not. Uh, do you want to be a GM? Like, is that what you see as your future? I mean, how many more years does Ken Holland have under contract? Well, I mean, Mike and Mike knows this, Mike
2: and knows this that you know, it, with all these conversations you bring up Jeff and NHL teams asking if I have interest, for right or wrong, I was I'm focused on what I do and I haven't sort of plotted out a course and this is what I need to do or, and this is how I need to get there to become an NHL general manager. I have a role with the Edmonton Oilers and I'm very grateful for it. I'm going to do the best job I can in whatever capacity they ask me and, and, and take it from there. So that's the truth of, the, of where my head's at.
0: The thing about Elliot's question is, though, and I'm, listen, uh, you were always very gracious all season long when I bothered you with texts and phone calls. Are you interviewing here? Are you Because your name was out there. Like, um, I think Steve Steos might be here. Steos might be there. Like, you're aware that your name was sort of, I mean, it's a, it's a compliment. That your name was sort of out there, attached to that position.
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, it's, we, it proves that you're do, doing a good job and getting noticed, and you know, building the program in Hamilton and in best in class. But you don't do that with a great owner like all the resources I had to, to put it in place. But uh, I mean, we've had great success in, in Hamilton, and you know, I go by the adage: you, you had the right people. You know, you just you kind of put the right people in place, but. Certainly, in, in, when I was talking about the phone calls that I got, that's probably where they emanated, but none of them really, some of them got a little bit more serious, but it was. I think more teams kind of, you know, asking me if I'd be interested. And again, for right or wrong, I had. No, I, of course I had interest, but I got, I got a job to do. You know, I, I'm working with the Bulldogs, and that was my main focus.
0: When you did retire, and you mentioned the conversation with, with Berkey and, and going that route, there were a lot of people... Uh, in media that were glad that you didn't choose to go into media? Because as CC mentioned, like, you're always a great... You're a money interview. Like, oh who do you want for the walk-off? Steos. Oh, who do you want to talk to? Steos. Did you ever consider doing media?
2: Well, I, I did a bit of the panel on, uh, you know, so uh, as a as a player, um, I guess I I like to be in the competition. I like to feel the, the wins more than the losses, but that's me. I, that's how I'm cut. So that's kind of the way I am. But, but CC, just to your point, like as far as like a go-to, we didn't have always great teams in Edmonton. We had good teams. And what I always found was at the end of the game, anytime we lost a game, I was like the last one in there. Like all the guys sort of screwed out. So I got kind of, <laughs> I was kind of, you know, I, I got, I was battle tested. Cause I, I, no one wanted to talk to me after a win. Cause I didn't score the goals. Right. You know, or, or make the big plays. So I think maybe I got a little bit battle-tested with the I gotta, media. i got to ask you something
1: about this, because this actually brings back memories. I won't – well, the team was Detroit, but I won't say who the players were. I remember doing a playoff series with Detroit where they were lost a couple of games, and it was always the same players who were out doing the interviews after losses, and I remember one player exploded. He, I heard him. He's like – where the bleep or the rest of you guys like the same guys have to answer the questions when we lose? Like, did you ever get mad? Because you were always very gracious. Did you ever like because we all know that like Pronger would go run and hide if after a loss? So, like, would you ever say, Hey, Chris, get your ass out here and answer the questions with the rest of us?
2: Uh, yeah, I think I called the out, called those guys out behind the scenes, but I was okay with it. I mean, I've always been, you know, that was kind of what I did in the National Hockey League. I played the, you know, whatever role I was asked and, you know, I, I stuck up for my teammates. So I guess that's another way that I was able to do it.
1: <laughs> you know, uh, you mentioned you went for your 1,000th game that year in New York, you ended up with 1,001. I think the greatest thing about your story, Steve, is that you played 1,001 games and you didn't play your first NHL till almost five years after you were drafted. Like, that's hard. How old were you when you got drafted? Right. Eight 19. So you didn't play your first game until you were about twenty-four, right? So to get to a thousand games when you don't play your first one to twenty-four, that's really impressive. And I was just wondering, did you ever think that maybe you weren't going to make it? Like in all those oh, years? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I
2: was uh two and a half years in the in the minors, I mean back to the international hockey league. I was in the IHL and I knew I, w- I thought I was in trouble in my I was in my third year of my, my contract, you cent know, three, a three-year deal. And in that third year, I, you know, we had the IHL. I was in Peoria, Illinois for the two years, the Rivermen. And then uh, in that third year, uh, they branched off to the American League. So, w- you know, when the St. Louis Blues were making cuts, all the top prospects went to the American League. And here I was, and they're like, you go to the IHL. And I was playing with all these veterans who were just sort of riding it out. Like, great guys, like Darren Veach, Greg Pozlowski, the Evans brothers. But... You know, I'm a 22 or 23-year-old at the time, and all the 22 and 23-year-olds are in Worcester. And so, God rest his soul, Jimmy Roberts was the coach in Worcester. And uh, I had gotten sent down to Peoria, and I was literally moving my stuff. I, and I was in a few days. I found an apartment. I was moving in, and I thought I was probably done. And I got a call from St. Louis saying, hey, uh, we want you in Worcester. And I kind of found out. Like, Jimmy Roberts like, yeah, send the kid to me, you know? And uh, you'll love this story. So if you guys ever got to meet Jimmy Roberts, just one of the greatest guys of all time. And I remember walking in with my gear, coming in from Peoria. And I was walking down this long hallway. And Jimmy had his office on the one side of the hallway and the dressing room's on the left. And as I was turning the corner to go in the dressing room, Jimmy Roberts yells over, goes, hey, kid, come on in here. And so I dropped my gear and I came in. And Jimmy was sitting there and he had his feet up on the desk. And he was sitting back and he was staring at me. And uh, and finally, takes a... About 10 seconds and stares me down, takes his feet off the desk and he looks over him, he goes, You wanna play in the National Hockey League? And I said, Yes, sir, I do. He goes, Learn how to play F in defense. Now get the F out of here, is what he said. Because I came out of junior, I came out of junior as this hot shot, like I'm gonna score a bunch of goals as a pro and stuff. And that was the moment. And so Jimmy taught me how to be a pro. Get in lanes, play tough, shop block, shut down, and uh, thank God for Jimmy.
0: As Elliot mentions, playing a, a thousand games, and I asked CC about you know favorite broadcast location and all that. One of the things I always wonder about with um, uh, with players and players that weren't shy, and you know you never ducked. You know you were you were a physical guy, like you, you didn't mind. I'm always curious about which rinks were the toughest to play in, and one thing in specific, which arena had the toughest boards? Like which rink did you go to? Like ah. Oh, I, because for for the longest time it was Montreal, like Montreal's boards did not move at all, and it wouldn't show up in that game. But you'd be playing, you know, two nights later in Minnesota, and all of a sudden, like, why oh, can't move? And it's because I just played in Montreal. Were there rinks like that for you, or by then were they all sort of were they all the same?
2: You know, it's funny. I'm trying to think back, Jeff. But the toughest rinks were always, you know, they're all predicated on the lineup. So when you go into <laughs> Chicago, and you're looking at Pro bird and co- like all you, you know. So I kind of remember more of the toughest rinks being by the toughest teams that you played against. And you know, reminiscing a little bit earlier with Michael and Cece about how the games changed. And they used to put the lineup on the on the board, and the guys would all come around and they are under gear and you're kind of taping your stick or getting yourself ready. And uh the lineup wasn't like we got to watch out for Austin Matthews because of his wrist shot, or you can't what you got to keep an eye on Patrick Kane because he's slippery. It was like. That guy throws left, that guy likes <laughs> to shoot uh, uppercuts, and this guy throws both hands, and we literally, that, that was sort of our scouting report back so, then. So
1: who scared you the most? Like, who was, like, who was the guy, like, who were the people that you remember like, oh, my God, I can't believe this tonight?
2: I was lucky because I wasn't a heavy, heavyweight, so yeah. I didn't
1: have to really,
2: but they all, they, they all scared me, really. I mean, the, <laughs> um, one of the toughest guys that I fought was uh, Todd Federick. Uh, oh, you know yeah. man could he shock him fridge I think was his nickname yeah. right I fought a lot of those guys but uh,
0: what about in the, the IHL though because sometimes the guys that never get the call up to the to the NHL they exist they get mythical status in the uh, in the minors anyone from the IHL you can recall well, yeah. By the way, the name Andy Bezo came up on the show the other day. Elliot dropped that one. I thought that was a pretty cool reference. So
2: I played with Bees in Niagara. Yeah, uh-huh. Niagara Falls. I played with Andy Bezo Did you watch one his kid play in St. John when the of Memorial I Cup? I did, against us. Yeah, and I think there was only one fight in the Memorial Cup, yeah, and it nice. was him. <laughs> it was his kid. But uh, no, Bees was incredibly tough. But I remember, I think my first, uh, it might have been my first preseason game in the IHL, and we're playing against uh, Minnesota, and Basil McRae and Shane Churla uh, you know, and I was like a yappy, like, you know, I was coming out a junior, like I can kind of handle myself. And I got in a little bit of a skirmish and one of the veterans like, don't know, kid, like from my own team pulled me out and goes, no, no, don't do not do that. You know? <laughs> so um, I I started to sort of get to know the league and the guys a little bit just, to, you know, for yeah. self-preservation.
1: Well, maybe when the game changed and you were playing more of, of your role, like who were the, the players who gave you the most trouble? Whether it was their way they battled in the corner, or battled in front of the net, or someone who would come down on you one-on-one, you were like, this guy is a load to handle.
2: Well, uh, as far as with a little bit of both, like when you talk about toughness and, you know, uh, agitator and things like that, like I remember being an oiler and, you know, the Battle of Alberta had not calmed down. Like we still had our rivalry, but the Canucks were the team, right? And because the, they're a good team and, you know, you got Kessler And Burroughs, and those guys were tough guys to play against. And it wasn't because you had to fight them because they were tough, but they had skill, you know? So I think that was sort of the transition where if they had a tough guy on the other team, you could choose not to or fight Mm -hmm. him. Or if you didn't do something egregious, then you probably didn't have to fight him. But those types of guys, you know, and uh, from a full skill perspective, like I remember playing against Patrick Kane early. And I remember this Kane kid comes up and, you know, guys are like, okay, let's, let's get a lick on this guy, right? Let's get a body on this guy. And he was like a ghost, right? You can't find the guy. <laughs> you know, you go, you go and try and hit him on one shoulder, and he spins off, and he's going to the net. So I was fortunate enough to play where it was like kind of that big, tough yep. first five years, kind of like tough grapple. Rule changes sort of came in. The transition with the league, and that's where you see the skill level and everything that's going on now. But. So I got to see sort of the middle turn and then I got to see really the, the, the high end talent with the mm. you know the smaller players and just the incredible IQ. Uh, you know, with the, the Kane's a great example, but there was a number of those guys that came in at that time.
0: I want to ask you about the Bulldogs, because you mentioned the Memorial Cup and we referenced off the top Hamilton Bulldogs uh ohl champions last season you mentioned is that the own. ring
1: you're wearing by the way last this is from ring?
2: 2018 michael hasn't given me my 2022 one yet
1: and you're not getting it now because you're leaving oh shit
2: i should have waited a couple of days just to get my <laughs> ring
0: <laughs> but uh as you mentioned like outstanding work um and i know these things don't happen overnight and it was brick by brick and piecing things together but bringing in mason mctavish like I think this I think we're all on the same page at how impressive a young man this guy is or what and you look at all the different places like I don't even think that he knows where home is at this point. He's played so many different teams, so many different locations. Like where's home, Mason? I don't know. When you got him? Like I'm sure you watched him tons in in Peterborough, but when you got him, what did you think?
2: Well, to me he's the real deal. I remember he wasn't even our player, but he's going into the NHL draft and you get calls from teams and kind of poking away at the Ontario sure. Hockey League and Literally, a text came through. telling me about Mason McTavish, and I just wrote, "He's the real deal: skill, grit, toughness, hockey sense, shot, all of it." So, speaking of home, he did have a home. He was at he was at our house for six months. We we billeted him. So, uh, my wife Susanna was uh, uh, the kid can eat. Let's just put it that way. Uh, but uh, just a terrific young man, and you know, a little bit of a throwback. Like he's not distracted you know, we've had the pleasure, Mike and I have had the pleasure of, you know, really getting to know this generation of player and they're phenomenal. Don't get, don't kid yourself. Like these, they're incredibly dedicated and intelligent. And, but, you know, Mason's a a bit of a throwback where he's at the house, you know, he's out for practice, comes back, has lunch. We have a shooting pad in the back just a, you know, with a hockey net. And he'd go there after, you know, being at home for an hour and a half after practice. And, and shoot pucks for a while and it's just you know I'd be watching a game on TV and he'd come up and sit with me and we just get to sit back and watch hockey so he's just a really incredible young man
0: what kind of questions would he ask
2: you know you talk about skill and all that stuff and when we've had other billets at the house you're talking about look at that player look at that skill and he would pick out look at that you know like even the compete on a guy or a puck battle like I think there's just a little bit of a much more mature mindset at this age for an 18 year old on some of the things we talked about but we talked about power plays Talk about line combinations, all of it. Did you and him talk about the play that saved the, the game? I only sent him. I sent him. A t- he was bombarded, I'm sure, after that. But I, I sent him a note. I sent him a picture of him, uh, you know, with the OHL championship trophy and a couple of celebrations. And I sent him a photo of the uh, uh, him with a gold medal on, and maybe a photo of the uh, hit the save that he made. And I said, "Pretty good year, eh, kid? You know, it was like, yeah, but." Uh, I haven't talked to, talked to him
1: about it, though. When you saw it, what did you think? That was an incredible play. Well, I thought the game was over.
2: I was actually, you know what, I thought I was yelling at the TV because I thought it was a penalty on Mason. He was back retrieving the puck behind the net and got tripped up, and that's what I was sort of focused on. And then the play happened real quick, and he, you know, he had the, the thought to get right back to And then you talk about mature habits. Like he goes right to that right area where he's going to be, you know, so, but an incredible hand-eye play.
0: I want to ask you about Nathan Quick, um, your son. The first time I met him was with you in Windsor at the Memorial Cup. We were at the gym and we were talking and introduced me to him. And, you know, five years later, he's on your team and you've won the OHL championship and you're going to the Memorial Cup. Can you be hockey dad for a sec, Steve? Can you stop being, you know, hockey guy and future GM and, you know, all that? Can you just be hockey dad for a sec and talk to us about your son?
2: Yeah, it, incredible. I think I, I have to talk about being the G, GM because I think it sort of paints the whole picture. But uh, it just far exceeded my expectations of, uh, you know, I always knew that he was going to be a very good junior player. Uh, but what he did this year and becoming OHL defenseman of the year, oh, CHL yeah. defenseman of the year. And, you know, not only that, but really some of his play was at the most crucial times for the Hamilton Bulldogs you know, uh, you know, game four against Windsor, um, you know, plays in the Memorial Cup. And that's what I think I'm most proud of. Is not he was there for his teammates in a number of ways, playing through injuries, all that, but he really stepped up in the big moments, which I thought was a real sign of, you know, the you know, the player when you start to evaluate these players, and that was really uh what was impressive. But you know, the trade almost never happened. You know, we talk about winning a championship this year, but in 2018. You know, you take a deep breath, you look at your roster, and okay, how are we going to do this again? And how long is it going to take? And we had a defenseman on our team by the name of Ben Gleason from, you know, Michigan, really dynamic kid, signed as a free agent with the Dallas Stars, our power play quarterback. And I said, you know, when we identified, I was sitting with Matt Turk and Ian Mahar at the time, said, so we're going to have to find ourselves another power play quarterback. Can we do it through the draft, or let's go through our list of players in the league? And they're like, yeah, Nathan Steos. And I'm like, okay, next guy.
0: And
2: they're like, no, 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 Nathan Steos., hey, Okay, that, you know, so I kind of, to the point where they looked at me and said, you know, you're kind of being selfish. You have a job to do for the Hamilton Bulldogs. This is the player that you need to go and get. And, you know, I knew that the pressure's on the kid. How does it look to the rest of my players, yeah. which mean a lot to me? You know, like our environment in Hamilton, like what's it going to look like? So, you know, thankfully
1: it all worked out. <laughs> Now, have you already told Ken to acquire him, like from Florida? <laughs> He's got. I think Nathan's got a lot to prove before he can do that. Yeah. My last question to you is: Who do you keep in touch with, like after you retired? Who were the players that you, the teammates that you kept in touch with after your career was over and their careers were over?
2: Oh, I mean, well, Jason Smith, who I thought was maybe the best captain that I've ever played for. Um, you know, kept in touch with with Jason, Ethan, Morrow uh fernando pisani uh, who i just talked to again today but uh you know that edmonton group i think uh, we became pretty close on that cup run here and there everybody gets a little bit busy and you know you get uh, yeah, i get focused on my work and so you're always in touch but it's not doesn't seem to be often enough
0: some bittersweet moments from uh hamilton hockey fans today one really proud of you two really sad to see you go We'll end on this one. A couple of things from you about your time here in Hamilton. What will you miss?
2: Well, the one thing that I, I missed to start out the night is, you know, you asked Elliot about Hamilton hockey, and I was sitting on the edge of my chair. He talks about Andrew Chuck, and he talks about all these other people. And I thought he was actually going to bring me up, but he didn't. <laughs> no, I mentioned your parents' place. <laughs> okay, that's good. You mentioned my parents, but that's, not myself. <laughs> well, you know I, Who's more important? You or your parents? Yeah, you got that right. You your parents'. That. <laughs> I'm gonna miss everything about it. I mean, Michael, I'm grateful for the opportunity. You know, it's one thing to be working in hockey; it's another thing to to be trusted to run your whole program. And Michael allowed me to do that. And uh, I think I made it. I told him when I he, he offered the position to me, I said I won't let you down. You know, um, so we've had so many special moments in Hamilton. But junior hockey is so rewarding. You get to draft a player at 15 years old, 16 years old. They come in. You watch them continue to develop. You get to meet their families. You put them in a bill at home. There's a real connection, you know, and I mm-hmm. think I'm not sure how that's going to be at the next level. I, I, to me, I think it's a differentiator. I think that's that's what I'm going to try and bring to Edmonton as far as, you know, making, making everybody feel special and being part of it. Um, but there's so much I'm going to miss. I mean, doing what we did in our hometown and winning two championships, you know, my relationship with Michael is never going to go away. So I'm not worried about that coming to the rink and watching our players and preparing for the games and the relationship with the coaching staff i'm sure there's going to be a lot of that at the next level as well but uh it's really been a special run
0: you've done listen you've done a great job with a lot of players and you referenced you know uh the regina 100 u anniversary the memorial cup we remember that team uh robert thomas you know, comes in for you guys. He did a great job finishing him up, getting him ready for the NHL, we think, to last year with Mason McTavish, and we say ditto. Well done. Good luck with the Edmonton Oilers. Thank you, Oilers. appreciate it, brother. So Steve Seos, now the Edmonton Oilers, special advisor, working in player development. Thanks, Steve. You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is...